Thank you, friends. Uh, great to have you all here today. And uh, okay, so let's just uh, let's just you know fire away. I uh, uh, I was really intrigued with Yuval Harari uh, since uh, I mean I think in 2014 I uh, looked at the TED talk that he did, and uh, I was so intrigued. I have never heard of the guy. I immediately went out and bought, bought his first book, Sapiens. And, uh, and I read it, and a few years after that, I think two years after that, uh, he produced uh, Homo Deus, and uh, two years after that, I think it was 21, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And I uh, just in really enjoyed him from the very beginning. And I was actually quite surprised, well, well not surprised, but, but, but um, he, he actually came a, became a phenomenon around between, I don't know, what, what was it, 2016 uh, you know, to 18 somewhere, and he's, he's extremely popular, very, very popular at the moment. Uh, who, who have you read any of, your, any of his books? Okay, a few of you. Uh, YouTube clips, perhaps, for some of you? All right, also a few. All right, now I think um, we can start just by asking the question, um, what, what makes him so important? Uh, just, just, I think, uh, sorry, very quickly, let's just say who he is first, and then we can dive into what, what really makes him important. Uh, Yoval Noah Harari is a he's professor of history uh, at the Hebrew University uh, of Jerusalem. Um, he, uh, he's, he's not just a historian, uh, he, he's an extremely clear thinker in the sense that he can really follow trends, historical trends, and, and make, I, I wouldn't use the word predictions because he himself wouldn't use that word, predictions about the future and, and uh, see trends in society. He's actually got a very strong prophetic voice as well, I think, R really observing society very, very well um, and, and really observes very well what's going on underneath the surface. Um, he's got tremendous clarity of thought, I would think. Uh, so he serves not only as a historian at the moment, and what's interesting is, uh, his two latest books, uh, Homo Deus and 21 Lessons, were absolutely based on what he said in Sapiens. But the topic for which he gets invited for the most is the second, the, the, the second side. Google invites him, Facebook invites him to come and speak and talk to him about digital, uh, the digital age that we live in and, and the things that we should really adhere to and listen to and, and the things we should really do in terms of moral choices, economic choices and so forth and so on. So what makes him important, I think, for our day-to-day -day is, of course, his popularity. If someone is really popular, that unfortunately makes him important. It doesn't mean that they necessarily have something good to say. I mean, the New Atheists uh, were also tremendously um, popular in, at, at one stage. I don't think that they were such good philosophers or thinkers, but uh, that made them very important, at least, in this, on a popular, on a cultural level that we need to engage with. Um, so I think that's, that's the first reason. The second one is the power and uniqueness of his thinking. If you compare him to the new atheists, although he would share some of the presuppositional frameworks of some of the new atheists, he's not as aggressive against religion as some of those are. He's not very excited about religion um, you know, as well as we will uh, see just now. Um, but he, I think what he, he looks at evolutionary history and I think he frames that and communicates that in a meta-narrative fashion, which I think makes it so compelling and hard to argue with and hard to resist that um, it, it really, uh, uh, he speaks as though with tremendous authority, which brings us to the, the third reason, I think, 
Um, and that makes him very, fairly unique, I think. Um, he really sells himself as a, as a deep, um, as a person of deep thought. Um, we may disagree with him on a lot of levels, but he doesn't strike you as someone that just, you know, uh, uh, talks or fly off, uh, flies off the handle. He really, really thinks deep about the things that he tries to present. And that brings us to the, th the third point, especially for believers. He leaves believers with a sense of feeling rather secular and shaken. I, I know several uh, believing friends that have read Harari that said, you know, re they read through Dawkins and Hitchens and D Daniel Dennett and, you know, he, he didn't really bother them that much. But once they read Harari, he left them rather shaken. And um, so I think at, at least from that, uh, from that perspective, that really makes him, you know, tr tremendously important. Now, there... There are his, um, there's his three books. Um, I'm going to do Sapiens first. I'm not going to uh, do the books categorically, distinctively on its own, but I, I do want to do Sapiens a little bit on its own because it's so fundamental, and then I'm going to uh, combine actually the three of them together, you know, Homo Deus and 21 Lessons, uh, still building on the foundation that we started with in, in, um, in, in Sapiens. So what we can do is, uh, if we look at Sapiens, he starts the first chapter of his book. He just has uh, that uh, those few those few things that he starts with, which which really reminds you, in some sense, like someone writing a, a an origin story. You know, it makes you feel like you're reading a kind of secular, you know, a secular version of Genesis. Um, and he says, okay, so evolutionary history. Uh, the the history of the human story, oh sorry, the, the hum, evolutionary history of the human story, uh, how humans conquered the planet. I think all, uh, I think sapiens you can really sum up with this with this one line, how humans conquered the planet, and the two later books are both built on what uh, on what happens in the first one. Um, so he says, okay, so about 500,000 years ago, um, the Neanderthals uh, developed in East Africa. About 300,000 years ago, the use of fire became prominent. Uh, 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens evolved in, in East Africa. So um, uh, Homo sapiens as a, as a species sort of uh, developed. But then something very interesting happened. And this is one of the major parts of, of sapiens. 7,000 years ago, there was the big cognitive revolution. This is very important. The cognitive revolution, actually, if you, understands that, uh, if you understand that, th that will be a very, very large part of... Um, you'll, get, you'll get most of what's been con conveyed in the rest of the, of, of the other books and YouTube talks, etc., etc. So, so he says, okay... We don't really understand why this happened historically, but 70,000 years ago, the uh, Homo sapiens developed a really uh, effective thinking part of, of their new cortex, um, that they can really imagine things that really started to distinguish them from all other animals. He starts sapiens by saying that we were no significant. We, we were not at all significant when compared to any other animals. If you were to put a Homo sapiens, or uh, rather just before that, um, a Neanderthal in a cage with a lion, you know, that would be absolutely no competition. The lion would win just like that. But, but how come that humans now rule the world? What actually happened? And this is this cognitive revolution. In our neocortex, in our frontal lobes, we developed a, 
an extremely effective way of thinking. What makes that so effective? That is our ability to imagine fictions, to imagine things that are not necessarily true but give meaning to our interactions in the material world. So he would say that all animals have this material sphere that we all live in, right? We all live in the material world. Uh, you know, w there are trees, animals, you know, uh, things fighting with one another, um, competing for dominance and so forth and so on. But everything happens for a normal animal. Everything happens only in the material world. But above that world, we as humans, as homo sapiens, developed an imaginative frame uh, or sphere in which we can imagine fictions, stories that give ultimate kinds of meanings to the material world, in what we experience in the material world. So, um, he would, for instance, say, if he would answer this question, how did humans come to rule the world in spite of the fact that, physically speaking, we're really, you know, very insignificant? He would say, he would say this, humans run the world because we can cooperate, this is a key sentence in this book, we can cooperate flexibly in large numbers. We can cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Let's take one or two examples. Let's take a colony of ants. They have very, very large numbers, right? But they cannot really be flexible. They don't uh, um, decide at one point, okay, listen, you know, we're tired of this working, you know, all the time. Let's just uh, organize a coup, overthrow the queen, and start a new social order. They would never do that. They are a, a lot in numbers, but they're not flexible. Then you have another species, like, for instance, the chimpanzee. They are... Um, they are socially much more flexible. They can organize new things. They have their own little social order, but they're not intelligent enough to do that in large numbers. They are, um, they are very small in terms of small tribes of you know, between 10 and 20. But what we can do as humans is we have the capacity to, because we have the, these fictional stories that give meaning to the lower level, the lower material level, we are able to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. How do we do that? We can all get 70,000 people into Loftus. How? Because we have this fictional story called rugby that we all share. And, and that fictional story that we can actually imagine um, can really become some kind of reality in the material world, and that pulls us all together. The, uh, the box played this morning. I don't even know what happened. I don't want to know at this stage. It's going to throw me completely. If I know, uh, I'm not going to look at facial expressions either. But um, that really unites us. That's one of the fictional stories that we've been able to create that really unites our country. I don't know if you remember in 90, the 95 World Cup. Um, that was just very interesting to me that when the day that we won, I mean, everybody in the country were in the streets. They were hugging one another, whether you were, you know, you know white, black, uh, you know, Afrikaans, English, Zulu, Kosa, you know, from different vocations. It doesn't really matter. You know, everybody ran in the streets, hugged one another. We all celebrated. Why? Because we all have this fictional story that, that binds us together and gives us common meaning. <clears throat> um, so then... Um, yeah, let me stay at the cognitive revolution for a, um, for a few moments. Th then these, um, Harari says, so we've created a lot of these fictions that, that, that unify us. He talks in the book, he's got a whole chapter on unifiers. 
And he says there are three of these stories are the most powerful stories that we've created that really unifies the human race to such an extent it's, uh, it's just almost unimaginable. And the first one is, <coughs> is the economic story, money, the economic story. He says that because we all believe in, in the currency of money, do I have some... Oh, I only have a tin rand note here. Okay. Well, you your imagination, since we're talking about imagination, right? Say this is a hundred rand note. Oh, well, ten rand is also fine, but let's take a hundred rand will be much better an ex uh, as an example. So this is the hundred rand note. The paper and ink is not worth a hundred rand. What makes it possible for me to go to a store and exchange this for something that's worth a hundred rand? Because of the fact that me as the customer and the guy at the store, we both believe the fictional story of money. We, we both share the common idea that this thing is worth a hundred rand. If we did not share that, he would laugh at me when I give him a piece of paper to buy you know, a few pineapples or whatever. So, uh, so we share this common story of economy that, that binds us together and that can really help us. And what I already, he, he, says about, he says a few great things that he observes about this. He says, in this economic story, trust um, uh, creates the highest form of human tolerance without any form of discrimination. I mean, if we can both come and make money together, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, what we're about, but, but this can really unite us because economy is so very, very strong. This can bridge any cultural gap with, without any discrimination. It, it's just the power of, of economics and the power of, uh, of money. The second unifier uh, he mentions is empire. Empires. Um, so evolution made us homophobic. The us versus you kind of thing. I want to fight for my tribe to actually survive. You fight for yours and we, might, we may clash at one point. Um, how do we solve this problem? By, by, by building an empire, by building my tribe as strong as possible and including, you know, taking over all kinds of other tribes and make them a part of my empire so that I can control all the other uh, living, uh, you know, the, all the other human beings in the world and uh, that they pose no threat to me. Uh, so empire is a very, very strong fiction that we've created as well. And of course, um, under the name of empire, there, were a, you know, there was a lot of slaughter and oppression and slavery and things that, that uh, went, uh, went along with us. But it's a very, very strong uh, fiction. And of course, um, Harari talks, that, that's actually, actually in some of his later books, I think it's in 21 Lessons, that he talks about uh, fascism. That uh, you had dictatorships because of the fact that, and that differs from nationalism. Nationalism is, is, is saying that, you know, I think that my country is unique, my nation is unique, and I can really contribute. But fascism says that my country or my tribe is superior, and uh, we're going to, you know, force anybody and everybody to be part of what we believe in. Okay. And then the third, th the third, the third fiction that Harari mentions is, of course, religion. And he says, what makes that so extremely powerful and important. Um, because in, in religion, this is one of the fictions that we've created. And, and, and by the way, he's, he's very secular about this. Um, he, he, he just uncritically accepts all the presuppositions of evolutionary, evolutionary biology and history. 
And so we've created God, we've created religions, um, but it's so strong, it's so powerful that it creates um, some kind of superhuman order, which makes it so effective because you cannot judge it. If God says it, uh, or the gods told us to do this, it cannot be questioned. Um, so uh, it, it, was, it, it was binding to all, and it blended in, of course, with empire and money, justifying the laws and um, the economic forces and the economic laws that we put together, it sort of just um, justifies what we do there. So this is a very, very important part of what, uh, of what Sapiens is all about, is uh, these, fictional, these fictions that we are able to create, and uh, the three strongest ones that serve as unifiers that can really unify uh, all of humanity. So th that's the cognitive revolution. But then we have the, um, the agricultural revolution. And when I spoke of empire, that's actually the, 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 the agricultural revolution is actually the one that sort of precedes empire in some, in, well, not in some sense, in a literal sense, because before agriculture, uh, tribes were nomadic. They moved around and uh, they went wherever the food were. And, but then at some stage, someone planted something. And they realized, oh, but listen, uh, we don't need to move around all the time. We can stay here if, you like, if we like what we see. So you find a place that you actually, that you, that you like very much, you stop there, you plant some stuff, you, you domesticate a lot of animals, you build kraals or whatever, you stay at one place. But now, uh, when you do this, your neighbor does it as well, his neighbor does it as well, and so we become a lot of neighbors, and we start competing, so what should we start do doing? We build villages in order that we can um, supply ourselves with what we need. Um, we build cities so that we can uh, uh, you know, uh, fend off other tribes that are foreign, that would come and take our stuff that we plant and eat on a daily basis, and that's how empires actually uh, also got to, uh, you know, came into being. It, it was all, the, the agricultural revolution preceded that. So, uh, and then of course he said the, 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 the third revolution, now of course there is the unification. He actually um, handles the unification of humankind under the, or just after the agricultural revolution. I just sort of uh, turned that around. And then 500 years ago, of course, we had the scientific revolution. Uh, the Aufklärung, uh, the, uh, the Enlightenment, and um, th where humanism um, started. Now, humanism, for the first time in history, humanism changed the, the source of authority. Before humanism started, the authority were the gods in the heaven, above the clouds. Your authority came from above. And the gods would say, do this, do that. Or God would say in the monotheistic um, uh, religions, do this or do that. And, uh, but now, for the first time, the human being, the human intellect was, was put right into the center of everyday decision making. And what's very interesting is, and I think when Harari has something... Uh, I think he, he's got a grip on something here. He says it's not our ability to, to reason. We used reason to say that we make all these decisions, but it's actually human feelings. 
And he says that we, we make our decisions in an emotional way, and we just, we just justify ourselves rationally. And of course, the, 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 uh, um, the marketing sphere in business also taught us the same thing. Neuroscience actually taught us the same thing as well, that the amygdala that emits the neurotransmitters to, to the rest of our uh, her brains, they, they work about a million times fast, faster than, than the thinking part of our brain. So, so emotions are much faster. And that actually dominates. Uh, our emotions dominate our decisions, although we would like to think it's rationality. So you know, on a faith and reason conference, perhaps it should be the, the faith and feelings conference. Um, that's actually it's better um, alliteration as well. But, um, so, and then in Sapiens, the, the very, very last chapter, um, Harari, you know, ends with the whole idea of actually these, these fictions, these developments made us gods. It put us right in the center. So now it's not the gods that tell us anymore what to do. Now I ask myself, God was the, um, uh, the expert on what was going on in the world. He was the expert on me because I, I was his creation or their creation, but now I know myself. We know now that that, that was only a fiction. And uh, the point is, I know myself best. So this, were, this is where individualism became very important. I cannot tell you what to do, but I can tell what I need and what I want. And so I know myself best, and that's why I'll, I'll make the decisions. Um, this is where the whole idea of the customer is always right, comes from, because, I mean, the customer knows himself best. He's the authority on himself or, or herself, and what they say, go. Um, the voter is always right. Uh, that's why we vote. That's why democracy uh, became a very important value in our liberal democratic system, in this whole humanism part, as part of the scientific revolution. So, this is, um, this is Sapiens in a, in a nutshell. Goodness, the time is running out. So, um, uh, and there's that slogan again. So, humans can cooperate flexibly in large numbers by believing in common fictions, by believing in common myths. All right? That, that is a, a great summary. That last uh, sentence is a great summary of the book. All right. So, Homo Deus and, and 21 Lessons. Why do I do them together? Because... Actually, 21 Lessons is just sort of a more detailed uh, playing out, elaboration on what's being discussed in Homo Deus. Uh, if you read Homo Deus, you will get all the principles. You don't even have to read uh, 21 Lessons, except if you want to ex understand some of the detailed implications of, of what is being said in Homo Deus, then it'll be, um, then it'll be a good thing. All right, so the, the first thing is there. He starts Homo Deus by saying... The, that we as humans conquered the world. There are very, comparatively speaking, there are m very little famine left. Uh, we've almost, um, you, know, you know, eliminated wars. And of course, you know, we still have the Taliban. We, all, we still have some of those uh, guys left. But, but he, he mentions very, very interesting statistics that we can be killed by McDonald's much easier. As a matter of fact, the chances are a thousand percent higher that we will be killed by unhealthy lifestyle than we will uh, die a violent death, especially by, uh, by Islamic forces. So uh, he's got the, the most interesting statistics. You can go through that in his book, Homo Deus. And, and plagues have also been 
mostly eradicated. Of course, he's got new YouTube videos, none of which I've looked at still, you know, how the world would look like after Corona. And uh, we can perhaps just um, have, a, have a look at that. Uh, actually not. It's really scary how um, Corona just intensified some of the factors that he's already been discussing. We'll get to that shortly. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. But, but he's, one quote in Homo Deus, he says, um, For the first time in history, more people die today of eating too much than from eating too little. More die from old age than from infectious diseases. And more people commit suicide than by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. In the early 21st century, the average human is fast more likely to die from binging at McDonald's than from uh, drought, Ebola, or an Al-Qaeda attack. And uh, so, you know, according to him, that's just, that just shows you that um, we've actually conquered, you know, we've conquered most things. So, that brings us to the second, oh, sorry, there's the quote, I forgot to put it up. That, that, that's the thing, when I do my PowerPoint by myself, I usually lose you guys. So, uh, please let me know if I forgot uh, a point there. All right, so, what will we re replace it with? Since we've conquered these big things that plague the world, what will we replace it with? And his answer is, homo deus. We've, we are going to become gods. We are busy becoming gods. Rather godlike pursuits like immortality, happiness, and divinity. And he, he, he means when he says that we are becoming gods, he means that in a literal sense. Now, um, he does not mean, he cannot mean that in a literal sense um, pertaining to a monotheistic definition of God, but at least to the the more general kind of, if you take Hindu gods or the old Roman Greek, the Olympian gods and so forth and so on, gods that actually were created but that can actually now create by themselves as well. So he doesn't mean that in, a, in quite a literal sense. And what does he mean? So he says there are three cultural tidal waves at the moment that, that, that are busy converging into one. And, and those three tidal waves are AI... I just said to Johan, it's really actually sort of sad that we separate this group specifically because two-thirds of what Harari says is all about AI as well. But he says it's not just about AI. If you, if you look only at AI, you're going to have a re, uh, reduced or reductionist picture of, what, of what's really going on. These three tidal waves are AI, biology, and technology. And these three um, are busy converging into what he calls biotechnology. Um, or just, in short, a biotech. He says this means the end, probably. He's, he's, he's not, he states the future very, very clearly as he sees it, but he does say, as a disclaimer, that technology is not deterministic. So we can create a great future with technology, or a bad one, a dystopia or a utopia. Um, but it will be the end of Homo sapiens as we know ourselves. It will go in one of three directions. Um, we will be uh, uh, we will go into bioengineering. In other words, engineering ourselves in a new way, in a new fashion, or cyborg engineering uh, that we are part human, part something else, inorganic. Or we will go in the direction of engineering non-organic entities. In other words, robots and stuff that would not necessarily be uh, organic. Uh, but will, that will s serve us in some way. Hopefully they will serve us. If you look at some of the movies, we, we're not entirely sure. Um, but, uh, but anyhow, um, th those, th those are some of the possibilities that, um, 
that, that we look at. So, then he says, so there will be upgrade. Um, uh, upgrade the humans from Homo sapiens to Homo deus. And then he says, so we pursue now, we have now have, to have the right, since we know now, that, that authority doesn't come from the gods, we create our own authority, um, so we cannot base the meaning of life, we cannot, as in previous days, before the uh, scientific revolution, we cannot base the meaning of our lives on the ultimate afterlife, because uh, we, we know now there's pro there is probably n no afterlife, and, and we have the power to extend life and actually find meaning right here. Now, at the same time, it's rather pessimistic about how we are going to find meaning, but, but at least um, th th that's, that's where he's at. So, he says, he claims that um, previous religions were too tolerant of death. And, um, and we, we sort of outsourced our, 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 our sense of meaning to the afterlife. But now we need to actually get with a program and, uh, and we should uh, extend this life as, uh, as far as we can and find some meaning in it. Now, when it comes to happiness, um, what's, what's really very important, um, no more afterlife, extend and find meaning in this one. Now, what's very important to our meaning is, of course, the whole idea of freedom. But he says freedom at the same time, uh, free freedom was born from humanism, the humanism of the scientific revolution. And so... Uh, what's important here is just to understand the following, that before the scientific revolution, authority came from above the clouds. It came from God or the gods. In the, in the scientific, during the scientific revolution, the authority was the individual. I know myself best. Now, here's the big shift. In Homo Deus in 21 Lessons, he uses the assumption to say that the authority is going to shift from the individual to algorithms. Biotechnical algorithms. Um, and he says, these algorithms, why will the authority shift to those? Because I can really study myself if in the scientific age I was the person that made my own decisions. I, I actually knew myself better. We are, we are now in a situation that through biotechnology, we can create algorithms that will know me better than I know myself. Let, let's take an example. Um, I would, uh, in the past, I would read a book. And I would say, okay, this was very interesting. I, I gained a lot of knowledge. I would put, put the book down. I would probably forget you know, two-thirds of it, but I will probably remember the main thrust of the book uh, and so forth and so on. But now, through technology, I read my Kindle. And as I read my Kindle, what happens? My Kindle is also reading me. My Kindle can determine on, uh, on which page did I linger the most, uh, which books do I mostly like to, uh, like to read. That's also, by the way, true of all the other information-based companies or corporations like YouTube. I mean, you know that if you go on YouTube, uh, you get more and more you, uh, you know, possible videos to look at based on what you've previously watched, right? Now, this is still very, very primitive, says Harari. What's coming next is, while you watch your, uh, your YouTube clips on, on your cell phone or read your Kindle, the next phase is that w while re you re read your book, you, uh, your, uh, your future kingdom, and it's a very near future 
Kindle will be able to read your facial expressions. And it will see which emotions did you sh show on which page, reading exactly what. Um, it, will, uh, it will know how, how many of which kind of books you read. What, and, and then the third phase would be if you would uh, put biometrical sensors, connect your Kindle with biometrical sensors that can actually measure everything in your body. The, the chemical processes, the, the neural processes, everything that's going on all the time. So where you read a book and you put it down, you forget uh, a half or, or a third of it, Amazon will never forget what you read and what happened. They, 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 they gain all this data all the time. And they, they, they assimilate it into a database, Rudolf Boerter, and they actually, in the end, they, know more, they will know more about me and understand more about me than I know about myself. Since humans are not that self-aware anyway. <laughs> right? Um, so, if I need to make a decision... In the time of the scientific revolution, what would I do? I know myself best. But now I need to make a decision. Who's going to make it for me? The algorithms. Some kind of algorithm, because they know me better than I know myself. If I want to know who to marry. Man, if you look at how people get married, they make big mistakes. Now you go to an algorithm that, that uh, has got all the data. They know you, medically speaking, neurologically, your your the pathways in your brain, what's important to you, your chemical processes, everything, and they can really match you with a, with a, you know, with a mate for life, a partner for life, much, much better than you can. And they can even, uh, Harari make this uh, very important claim, he says, um, that don't think you'll be able to argue with this algorithm. You will, um, before you'll be able to argue, the, uh, the, the algorithm will, will be able to tell you or the corporation that ha having all these algorithms about you will be able to say, I know what you think, Rolf. You think you actually want that girl because she's more beautiful. I, I, I know how you think, but let me try to convince you otherwise. He will really be able to, to counter every counter that, that, that you would give it. So, um, they will understand you better. So, humanism, in humanism, you understand yourself best. Um, the customer is always right. Now the customer doesn't know himself that well anymore. There are, there are algorithms that know what he needs to shop for, um, how he needs to vote. Um, in the medical area, we already—I mean, we already have watches, you know, that we get as part of our discovery plan that can, you know, take your heart rate and you, you know, and you put these these little, little thingies on your arm and they, you know, they measure everything. That's highly primitive still. Within a few years, your cell phone will be able to measure everything in your body. Um, um, apparently, a few years back, um, Angelina Jolie, this, this also comes from Homo Deus, I think, um, went to see specialists, and they put biometrical sensors on her, some kind of sensors, and they um, predicted that she will develop, if they just look at all the processes in the body taking place at this moment, she will probably develop breast cancer within a few years. Um, and she could already t take action now. Now, of course, you, you need to take out the money at this stage to actually sit on these sensors you know, for a long time. But shortly, um, it will not, not, not be necessary to go to a doctor, but your cell phone or your algorithm or your laptop or something, or even a, uh, uh, um, some kind of interface that you will have will be able to make the decision for you. 
and th that will predict that based on what you eat at the moment, based on how many times you exercise, uh, based on what's going on, your genetics, everything, you will probably develop cancer within 10 years uh, in your liver. So you know, just be careful, we can still prevent this. So who's going to make the choices for you? Not you. Your algorithm is going to, is going to make the choices. Now listen, this is, all har this is not what I'm saying, okay? This is Harari, all right? And I think a lot of what he's saying, you know, may hold a lot of water. We don't know. This is about the future. Anything can happen. And again, Harari also says this, technology is not deterministic. Um, but, you know, since it's connected with the, the um, science and uh, biotech will be connected to economic forces, you know, that will really complicate matters because if it's connected to how much money you can make out of something or how much money a corporation can make out of something, that will really be, you know, that, 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 that can determine to a large extent how, how everything is going to, uh, to play out. Have I lost you there? Oh, yeah. Uh, the GDP, the general uh, domestic product, will be placed with the general domestic happiness. Um, decreased death and poverty, happiness to a big, big extent, um, this is a very interesting one. Uh, a poor, hungry peasant becomes joyful. How will we create joy for ourselves? A poor, hungry peasant, peasant becomes joyful when he discovers bread. How do you bring joy to a bored, overweight engineer? Um, happiness bangs against the ceiling despite all accomplishments. Um, so we have biochemistry. How do we uh, get happiness? And here he goes back to Epicurus, which is very, very interesting. He said that when we feel pleasant sensations and are free from unpleasant ones, that's more or less when we are happy. Now, I think that's a rather superficial uh, definition of happiness, but, it, but, but anyway, th that's how he defines happiness. And that's why he said, uh, he says that uh, a very important thing that's going to give the, the proper sensation to drugs, um, video games, online gaming, um, the things that, uh, you know, and, and science fiction, movies like The Matrix or Star Wars, that, that, that represent worlds that have not been created yet. Why would somebody read anything else th th than, than science fiction? Because all the other stuff we will already be informed about, uh, which is a very interesting idea. Um, so, so we have to rig our own happiness. We have to manipulate it. Um, and, of course, we, we need to separate the bad from the good manipulations. Like, for instance, criminals, um, you know, they... they uh, so that we ca so that we don't do not become criminal criminals, and uh, and so forth and so on. All right. Let's just see. Yeah, the next one is is probably very important. <coughs> this comes from well, this is already in in Homo Deus, but it's much elaborated. There's a whole chapter on this in in Twenty One Lessons, and that is um, work will be mostly all automated. In, in most regards. Uh, and he uses the example of a motor vehicle. You won't drive your, your, your own motor car anymore. Think about the benefit of... Uh, or before I get to the benefits, he says, um, think about how many car accidents. A great, great percentage of car accidents are being caused at the moment because of human error. What if an algorithm can drive your car? And that algorithm, like for instance a computer or whatever, that, that will be connected, all the cars that go, that go around in the city are being connected to a centralized algorithm, and they, they monitor one another all the time, every second, every moment. 
that will eliminate 90% of all motor car accidents. But here's the problem. Philosophers will really th have to think through this. Because your individual car, what decisions is your individual algorithm in your individual car going to do when, for example, um, you come into a situation where your car is going to kill five other humans? What's your car going to decide? Is he going to kill the five humans to protect you? Or is he going to do a more ethical thing, perhaps? Drive off the cliff with you inside, kill you, and save the five humans. So those are things that philosophers will need to think about very quickly because engineers developing these kinds of cars are not that patient. And they're going to, perhaps you can go to a store or to a, a car dealership and you can decide, I'm going to buy the more ethical car that will you know, kill me and instead of the five, and you can have the choice to go to another one that says, no, no, I'm gonna, you know, the car's going to protect me and kill the others. Um, I don't know. This, this is, of course, completely unsure. Um, but that creates, if, if jobs are going to be automated to a large extent, that means that there's going to be an age of useless humans. We are going to become extinct. Um, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to be all poor because we might have investments in some of these corporations or we might even own some of the companies or, or whatever, but we're going to become useless in the sense that we're going to use, lose our sense of meaning and we will need to create our own meaning very, very fast. Um, something like... Um, um, and that will also threaten... Um, an important value, value like democracy um, is exactly this kind of thing. Because if authority shifts from um, myself to an algorithm, that means um, Harari um, compares, he says, what is a dictator? A dictator in the olden days, before the scientific revolution, was someone or a group of people um, it, it was all about controlling land and acquiring land. So w where there's the most concentration of land under one ownership or group of people, you get dictatorship. In the scientific revolution, what became more important than land? Machines. So all the corporations that own the, most, the biggest co concentrations of machines, they become a monopoly. Not just that, they can become a dictatorship. And he says in the new age, um, it will be data. Data will be the new, f where there's the most, the, the largest concentration of data, the corporation that owns that or the, the, the person that owns that will be, um, will be heavily tempted to become dictatorial uh, in how they manipulate. And he says that will and can threaten our democracy. And we will have to have a look at that. All right. I, I think we've, going, we've been going on really long enough. Um, I'm... Let's just go through a few of these. The death of, the death of humanism, yeah, I've actually spoken about that. Um, he's talking about the, yeah, the disillusionment, the techno-humanism, we've talked about that. Okay, yeah, so theism turned into humanism is going to turn into dataism. Right? So data is going to become the new god um, that's going to have all the authority to, to make our decisions. Um, and by the way, Harari says that humanism was not a bad idea as we perhaps as Christians would think it is, uh, because re you really understand yourself best, and for you to make your own choices was actually a good thing. Um, so he says, stop following divin d divinities, but, but reduce suffering. 
Um, that is much to the end of his 21 lessons book. Um, let me just see if I have some notes here that I, I've, I've let something out. Oh yeah, he said that natural, natural selection will be replaced by intelligent design, but not intelligent design as created by God, but created by, by algorithms. And, um, and so, of course, um, that, that connects with the whole thing of, um, you know, don't you know, stop following divinities, you know, uh, but, 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 but rather reduce suffering. Stop praying for miracles and ask, how could I help? Um, liberty and democracy, uh, the voter is always right, um, easy. Uh, no, a dictatorship or rather... Um, you know, nationalism might be a good thing, but we, we, we might create a new form of fascism or dictatorship that we need to, that's going to threaten democracy. We've, we've talked about that. And then community, yeah. It's easier to talk to your cousin in Switzerland than to your husband at dinner because um, at least when you talk to your nephew in Switzerland, you know, you look at his face online or, or maybe on an interface that you can't, that's not even physical anymore, it might be in your mind. Um, but if you sit at the dinner table, you're going to be on your phone all the time or interacting with all the pieces of knowledge that you have access to and not to. I mean, like now, you know, uh, I uh, rode on the, on the car train the other day and I just saw three family members sitting together, each of them on their cell phones. I mean, we all know that kind of scenario. They don't communicate anymore. They don't talk to one another anymore. And, and in some cases, our young people, right in this church, they would sit next to one another or in one restaurant and text one another, you know, and not really talk to one another anymore. So that will increase the need to proper community, but it will be very hard to get uh, rid of the addiction of, of being inter in interaction with, with all these devices that I have to my um, disposal. Uh, civilization is going from local to global. Uh, Leonard Sweet, theologian, says maybe we should talk about global because local will still be very important, but we, cannot, we will not be able to, to ignore um, global anymore education. Uh, forget about information, uh, rather how to process uh, information and how to reinvent. Uh, here are a few things on education. Um, how, to, uh, how to handle change. What should I teach my kids? What should be the content of education? Uh, how to handle change. How to reinvent themselves repeatedly, because you're going need to uh, need to do that. Um, it's not about info, but learning while I do. The whole idea that we, that we grew up with, first go to school, university, and then start doing. He said, that, that's passe. We're going to have to start learning as we go along. Um, and then, of course, mental stability and EQ will be very, very important. And, and self-awareness. Education should really look into these, um, these, these things. And, uh, okay, that, we said that. Yeah, meaning is all about get to know yourself. He uses the whole uh, Mufasa thing, circle of life, you know, become who you are. Do you remember that? Uh, Lion King? Okay. Uh, those of you who don't, uh, you should really get out more. Um, so circle of life, it's all about identity. Who are you as a, as a human being? So you, you need to get to know yourself. That's, why, that's where faith in Jesus teaches us something completely different. Um, and meditation is key. He himself meditates uh, two hours a day and he goes for a hike. Uh, for be between 45 and 60 days per year where he just, you know, gets his clarity of mind and so forth. Just observe reality and reduce suffering. All right. Critique. Quickly. I'm, uh, this is not very difficult. Uh, I'm going to get through it very quickly and then hopefully we have a, a few minutes for Q&A. He gets many facts wrong uh, and 
those are just two broad categories. Okay, he, he gets many facts facts wrong. And that's not that's not even me bringing that up. It's other secular people that actually criticize him. And of course, the second one is the biggest one. I think that his presuppositions and and, and points of departure is a great lack of the philosophical question: Why? Why all these things happen? Let's go through it quickly. It's just a few facts. I, I actually want to go past this because this is this is not really that important. But he. He's got a, a very big lack of knowledge about Christianity, about what makes the gospel unique. He just, um, uh, you know, defines religions uh, as almost they differ in, fi- in the finer details, but they're actually all the same. It's really not true if you look at, 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 at some of the religions. But he uncritically accepts secularism. He doesn't question it at one point. And that, while there are other... Um, um, Atheist philosophers that actually says that, uh, say that there are, are, there are a lot of problems with, with some parts of secularism. He uncritically accepts naturalism. Naturalism means I explain everything that happens in terms of natural law, nothing else. He criti- uncritically accepts evolutionary history without asking why all these developments happen. And by the way, this is not a, you know, a debate about you know, is evolution the real thing or is it not. That, that's really not not the issue today. I mean, you can have whichever opinion you want to have. We just think that um, this, let's start with what Harari says about this. All right. So, uh, just a few, uh, just a few examples. Why is he not skeptical about his own secular values? Um, And we say that in the light of uh, philosophers like David Berlinski, uh, Thomas Nagel, in his uh, little book, uh, Mind and Cosmos, where he severely challenges naturalism as an atheist himself. He says that there are a lot of problems with evolutionary biology as a meta-narrative for, 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 for human history. Um, he says, uh, why does he accept claims of science? And then he says in Homo Deus that, no, no, actually it's in Sapiens already, that science in economy is in a symbiotic relationship. The one affects the other. So can we always trust the science that we do? That's a very, very interesting, compelling question to me, as I, because I love science, and I'm sure a lot of you do too. So, you know, how, how are we going about that? Uh, why did humans develop thinking properties? He says that time and again, that we don't understand why that happened, and it happened so fast. In comparison with any other animals that developed anything, um, that, 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 that evolution didn't take us through the, the discipline of slowly developing it so that we can actually learn how to ha- handle our own thoughts and, uh, you know, so why did we uh, develop that? Someone like, like C.S. Lewis would completely acknowledge the evolutionary development of human beings, but he would say somewhere in this developmental process, God um, endowed us with, 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 his, um, with his image. And, you know, uh, but Harari, of course, wouldn't expect him to ask that specific question, but he doesn't even ask it in general. Um, why did fictions develop? Have we ever think about it that we cannot have faith without imagination? How do we imagine a relationship with an unseen God if we don't have any imagination? Couldn't this developmental of, um, development of fictions be something spiritual? Something that God gave us in order so that we can actually have a relationship. Um, so that we actually can have values that take us into a deeper way of being human. Um, now again, I, I, I completely acknowledge I impose my Christianity now on what he says. But, I mean, I cannot do anything else. That's what I am. I'm a Christian. Um, why does he accept a Marxist definition of religion? He says um, religion is actually the opium of the people because it was very useful at some point to keep people going, but it's, 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 not, ne- it's, it's not really necessary anymore. 
Um, why do we need to reduce suffering? Because of what? Um, why is the values of humanism necessarily correct or right? Why is it healthy? Um, if you accept ev the evolutionary process, why is it natural selection still the highest um, uh, value to just let the highest uh, survive and the weak uh, you know, die off? Um, sorry, uh, why hang on to liberal humanist values if they were fiction just, fictions just like God? Why still hang on to those? Why is democracy important if, if, they, if it was just a fiction like the gods that we used to believe in? Um, if, society, if social hierarchy is a fiction, why isn't equality? Because he's very strong on equality. Um, why is that? He, he, he doesn't even answer that. He doesn't even think about that. Uh, well, if he does, he, uh, he doesn't say it. If righteousness is a fiction, uh, why not discrimination? He's very strong about you know, not to discriminate. Uh, if the human race has no soul, what then is consciousness? If science has no clue. This is a very interesting point. And this is where I, where I really respect Harari because he said, all the developments in science have been on the area of intellect. We know a lot of how the brain works. We know a lot. You know, it's still primitive, but a lot more than we used to know. We know a lot about intellect and gaining knowledge and processing data. But science has, no, his words, not mine, has made no progress whatsoever concerning consciousness. He says zero. We don't, the more we study consciousness, the less we know. So um, if we don't have a soul then, and we know nothing of consciousness, how are you so sure that we don't have a soul? What if consciousness reveal some kind of mystery about our being human that, that they can't access through science? Um, so, now, of course, we don't want to use the God of the gaps approach, but you can see that the explanatory power of the Bible is really, really huge. And the Bible don't just explain, you know, what, that what we have no data on. It also explains what we have data on, why, why it happens like this. Now, of course, if you're, a, if you're a skeptic, you don't have to necessarily accept that, but at least you, you need to think about that. Uh, why is the cosmos fine-tuned for life? He doesn't ask that question. Why are humans persistently looking for meaning? I mean, that's a big philosophical question. Of course, theology has been discussing this for years and years. Um, why is that important? Now, he does not need to answer all of these, but he needs to explain why he accepts and assumes naturalism if naturalism does not answer any of the above questions. Christianity does. Um, Christianity is extremely relational, and um, we, have a, we have a theist epistemology, and I, there's no time left. I just want to close with this one thing, and that is, uh, sorry, b b uh, before I get to that, Harari closes by saying that suffering is the most real thing in life. He says, if you want to know whether a story is about a real entity, you should ask, can this entity suffer? Which to me brings the cross right in the center of the discussion. If he says the only real entities are entities that suffer and God presents himself in Jesus as the suffering and dying God, couldn't he be real? Um, Google cannot suffer. 
The fiction of Google cannot, the people in Google can suffer. Google cannot suffer. Facebook cannot suffer. People can. And so the questions Harari asked, and that's actually Louise that actually taught me this principle. She, she used to say to me that the questions that Nietzsche asked actually led her to believe in God. And I want to say something about the same thing on Harari, that the questions he does not ask, the gaps that he leaves open, um, the way he is leading the discussion, but unfortunately not understand, he does not understand the Christian story well enough to understand that it actually leads him to a large extent to the Christian gospel. And we don't have time to go into that, but, but if you want to, on, on an intellectual level, have some discussion or read something about that can really guide you through, from a spiritual point of view, um, a secular age by, um, on the top right, Charles Taylor. It's 900 pages, so be ready to really go at it. Um, the one on the left is perhaps a better option. Uh, J.K.A. Smith is a Calvinist philosopher that interprets a, a secular age, about 200 pages. Still heavy reading, but it's very good. Uh, left bottom, Leonard Sweet. I know he's not that popular with everybody, but he, at least he's the, the one theologian that really engages these questions of Harari. And then one that I'm hesitant to to mention Leslie Newbegin is a missiologist. He already died, I think, in the, uh, in, in the 90s. But his foolishness to the Greeks is a tremendous unpacking of how modernism came to be and how we should create um, mission-centered experience, experiences in the culture that we currently live in.